Deuteronomy chapter 32. Heard the curses, blessings of the covenant, and now as Moses is slowly drifting off the scene, God's given them everything they need. He's given them Joshua. He's given them the reading of the law. He's given them these witnesses. And now we take a closer look at the song of Moses, this witness that he's given. We'll actually start one verse before chapter 32 and verse, chapter 31, verse 30. Then Moses spoke the words of this song until they were finished in the ears of all the assembly of Israel. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is he not your father who created you, who made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father, and he will show you your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land, and in the howling waste of the wilderness he encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. He made him ride on the high places of the land, and he ate the produce of the field, and he suckled him with honey out of the rock, and oil out of the flinty rock, curds from the herd, milk from the flock, with fat of lambs, rams of Bashan and goats, with the very finest of the wheat. And you drank foaming wine made from the blood of the grape. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom there is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. For a fire is kindled by my anger, and it burns to the depths of Sheol devours the earth and its increase, and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. I will heap disasters on them. I will spend my arrows on them. They shall be wasted with hunger and devoured by plague and poisonous pestilence. I will send the teeth of beasts against them with the venom of things that crawl in the dust. Outdoors the sword shall bereave and indoors terror for young man and woman alike, 
the nursing child with the man of gray hairs. I would have said, I will cut them to pieces. I will wipe them from human memory had I not feared provocation by the enemy. Lest their adversaries should misunderstand, lest they should say, our hand is triumphant. It was not the Lord who did all this, for they're a nation void of counsel, and there's no understanding in them. If they're wise, they would understand this. They would discern their latter end. How could one have chased a thousand and two have put 10,000 to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had given them up? For their rock is not as our rock. Our enemies are by themselves. For their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of poison. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of asps. Is this not laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine, and recompense. For the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people, and have compassion on his servants, when he sees that their power is gone, and there is none remaining, bond or free. Then he will say, Where are their gods, the rock in which they took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices, and drank the wine of their drink offerings? Let them, rise up. Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear as I live forever. If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired heads of the enemy. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. Moses came and recited all the words of this song, in the hearing of the people, he and Joshua, the son of Nun. Amen. Let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, there is so much here. Please show us marvelous things in your law. I even confess, O oh Lord, this is a part of your word that I've long read and haven't understood, haven't seen much here. So, Lord, open up our hearts, open up our eyes, help us to see. Glorify yourself in this passage and fill us with hearts of proper fear, reverential fear. Lord, do this work. Please give me strength and clarity. Above all, Lord, the power of your spirit, accomplish in your people what you would accomplish. We're just available and here and waiting upon your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I know I don't have to tell you that music is an amazing thing. It's amazing for singing God's praise. That's its highest purpose. Uh, what a gift he's given us. He's given us a way to unite our minds with our emotions together in harmony with all our brothers and sisters for the highest purpose of singing God's praise. So music's an amazing thing. Music has another purpose, though. Music is an amazing teaching tool. There's just something about putting things to music that makes it stick. You know this. So I bet all of you kids here, I bet you know all kinds of things through songs. Like, well, the ABCs, but maybe you know some catechism through songs, or all the books of the Bible, or 
you probably know a lot of useless things too through songs. Uh, and grown-ups, I bet you still remember all kinds of things from when you were a kid through songs. Uh, music is how I know the Hebrew alphabet. I know it through a rap. Uh, most of the, I know most of the countries of the world up till 1995 through a song, state capitals, and many useless things besides, because music is an amazing teaching tool. And this is relevant to us tonight because Deuteronomy 32 is a teaching song. That's why it was given. It was given to teach God's people, young and old, through all the generations, some important things. So we'll look at this song tonight from three different angles. First, let's talk about just the function, the purpose of this song, why this song is here. Then let's talk about what this song teaches us, what are the lessons that this song teaches us, and then third, we'll talk about how do we apply this song to ourselves today. So those three things. So first, let's talk about the function and purpose of this song. So the first question we have to answer tonight is why is there even a song here? It seems like a strange thing. You've got a covenant document and some transition and then a song. Why is there a song here? It seems like a strange thing to have. And I can tell you, scholars have poured over this song. Scholars have poured over every inch of this Bible. And they've noticed a couple interesting things about this song. The first thing they've noticed is that this song is basically a miniature version of Deuteronomy. Uh, Deuteronomy, like Deuteronomy, it's got almost all the pieces of an ancient Near Eastern covenant document, like a historical prologue and the introduction to who the king is and blessings and curses and witnesses and all those things. Uh, in a different order slightly. So in some ways, this song is really good for just teaching in song about a covenant, about the covenant. But then scholars notice this song has a lot in common with ancient Near Eastern lawsuits, covenant lawsuits. In ancient days, kings would, if their vassals weren't following the covenant, they'd send them a lawsuit, they'd get served, and Deuteronomy 32 looks a lot like those letters. Even in its tone, it looks like those letters. So in some way, this song was really useful for holding God's people accountable to the covenant that they were in. But even though Deuteronomy 32 has a lot in common with covenant documents and covenant lawsuits, it's still a song. It's not those things primarily. It's a song. And Moses tell, tells us exactly what it is pretty directly in chapter 31. You look back at verse 19 of chapter 31. We read it last week. This is God telling Moses some instructions. He says, Now therefore write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. And when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness, for it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. So the purpose, here's my bottom line for this first point, the purpose of the second song, it's to be a witness against God's people. A witness to the fact that God is just and God is right when he judges people that turn away from him. That's what this is, his primary purpose. God knew his people would turn away from him. He knew it. He knew it was only a matter of time. He sees all things, knows all things. So he injected a song into the national consciousness of Israel, which would forever uphold the glory and honor of his name over and against everything they would do. So that's what this song is. This song is a witness against God's people for the future, for a future day, uh, which leads us to our second point. That's the purpose of this song. Now let's talk about what this song teaches us. 
So I kind of already told you the, the biggest lesson of this song. If I just gave you one thing that it teaches, it teaches us the lesson that, that God is just and right whenever he judges somebody who turns away from him. It's the big lesson. But what we also need to look at tonight is how Moses makes this point. I know this song's pretty long. I know it can be kind of hard to follow on first read through. You have to really study it. It is Hebrew poetry after all. But I think if we boil it down, we can see that in this song, God puts forward three great arguments that uphold his righteousness. Three great arguments for when his people have fallen, when they've blown it, that show that he is still righteous, that he is still good, even in punishing them. So the question then, okay, so why is God just and right to judge those who walk away from him? Okay, first reason. He gives you three. God argues that he's been a really good father and that his people have been really bad kids. That's his first argument. So verses three and four, they show us that God himself is good. He is good, good, good. All his ways are justice. He's a God of faithfulness. Just and upright is he. That's what it says. Then verses 5 and 6 tell us, well, God's people were bad kids. It says they have dealt corruptly with him. They're no longer his children. They're a crooked and twisted generation. Jesus uses that term later. Talk to the Pharisees. Then we've got this extended section. God tells us all the good things he's done for his people. He's been a good, good father. Verses 7 through 9, he brings us back to Genesis. Back to when he establishes the nations, scatters the people on the globe. He tells us, though, that he made Israel special. He says the Lord's portion is his people. It's his electing love. He says, I've elected you. I've elected you. Then in verse 10, he brings us back to the Exodus. He depicts himself as a shepherd. He found his people when they're in trouble. He says he found them in a desert land. He encircled them. He cared for them. Probably looking back to slavery in Egypt, maybe to the wilderness wanderings. Verse 11, he brings him back to numbers. Pictures himself as a mother eagle teaching his eaglets how to fly. It says, bearing them on its pinions, the Lord alone guided them. Probably looking back to wilderness wanderings. He's teaching them faith. He's teaching them how to fly. Then in verse 13, he brings their minds to the things that are about to happen. He talks about them as though they've happened, because he's the God who speaks of things that aren't as though they are. He brings their minds to Joshua. He goes on and on about all the wonderful things he's about to give them in the promised land. Honey, oil, curds, milk, fat, finest of wheat and wine. From rocks, from nothing, from... Remember, this is written to people in the future, people that would memorize this for the future, who would one day turn from him after being given all these things. So the point is, God's saying, in this section, he's saying, God has always been a terrific father, such a good father. He himself is righteous and just. Look at all the wonderful things he's done for you that he's given you. And then what follows is a section where God says how bad his children are or would be. I look at verse 15. He's actually being ironic. He calls them Jeshurun. He's like, who's Jeshurun? Uh, that's a pet name for Israel. It means upright one. He's being ironic, calling them the upright. He said he is the one who is Yasher. He's the one who's upright. And here's Yeshurun, the upright one. And he's, by contrast, you're thinking, yeah, they're not that all, all that upright. The more prosperous they grew, the more they go against God. He says Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. The more not only did they go against God, but they worshiped demons instead. It says they sacrificed to demons that were no gods. They were unmindful of the rock that bore him. The point here is that in some point in time, God's people would be terrible children. Absolutely awful. 
So that's God's first argument about why it is good and right that he would judge his people. He's been a good, good father, and they've been terrible children. First argument, upholding his righteousness, upholding the honor of his name. Second reason, he argues that his punishments, as he hands down a sentence, he's implicitly arguing that his sentence is just. His sentence is right. See that in verses 19 through 25. That's the sentencing part. Think if this is a covenant lawsuit. This is, this is the punishment that's coming. Think eye for an eye justice when you read this. He promises because his people spurned him, he promises to spurn them. Spurning is to reject with disdain. Think like what girls used to do to me at middle school dances. Spurn. And the Lord saw it and he spurned them. He said, I will hide my face from him. Because his people turned to other gods, he would turn and use other nations to punish him. They've made me jealous with what's no God. I will make them jealous with what is no people. Then because his people took his blessings for granted, he would turn and give them curses. Look at 23. Hunger, plague, beasts, sword. For everyone, he says, from nursing child to man of gray hairs. See, not only does God hand down a sentence for his people, but it's obvious that it's a good sentence, it's a just sentence, because of how it's structured and because of what it contains. It's eye for an eye. It's appropriate. And then third, God's third argument that he is just and right to judge his people is actually a little strange. God argues that he's good and just to not wipe out this people entirely. Now that might seem like a strange one. You may be thinking, well, that's weird. He's arguing he's just for not wiping them out. Why would he need to make that argument? I think this seems like a strange one because we're so incurably man-centered. We're not very God-centered in our thinking a lot of the time. As man-centered people, we're like, well, of course God wouldn't wipe out his people because we think that we're the most important. We think God's people are the most important. But if we were more God-centered, when we heard about how bad his people were, we would be wondering, God, they've offended you so horribly. Why did you not wipe them out? If you're just, why didn't you punish them worse than you did? They deserved it. He says in verse 26, he gives us a rationale. He gives us a self-defense for why he didn't totally wipe them out. He says in verse 26, I would have said, I will cut them to pieces. I will wipe them from human memory. But then he doesn't for two reasons. First is, he doesn't want their conquerors to gloat over him. God long planned, before he even made the nation, he long planned that he would use another nation to judge his nation. But when they finally did it, he didn't want them to gloat. He didn't want them to say, we did it. We beat God. We beat God's people all by ourselves. We did it. God is so weak. We are so strong. So God would stop short of destroying his people so his enemies couldn't gloat over him. So they couldn't get glory over him. He would stop short of destroying his people for the honor of his own name. That's the first reason he gives. You think the first reason would be he loves them, but he says, no, the first reason he gives is the honor of his own name. The second reason he gives, well, I'll say this first, and this is what God always does. He uses a stick. He uses a second nation like a stick to beat his people. He does do that. But then he would eventually break that stick and throw it in the fire. So that's the first reason that God gives for not totally destroying his people. The second reason he gives is a little less obvious, but it's still there. 
The second reason God gives for not wiping out his people is he still has plans for them. He still has good plans for them. Because he knew that someday they'd be suitably humbled, and then he would exalt them. Then he would atone for them. He says in verse 36, The Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone. And even better, he says, someday he'll make atonement for them. It's there in verse 43, in the Hebrew of verse 43. Now, I know the ESV says he will cleanse his people's land, but the ESV takes from the Septuagint, and it takes from Greek manuscripts and not the Hebrew. In this case, we'd go into that for a long, long time, but in the Hebrew manuscripts, it says he will provide atonement for his land and his people. It's saying he's going to atone. He's still got a plan for his people. He's going to atone. That's why he didn't wipe them out. He's going to atone. Hebrew also says it calls all the nations to worship God. In verse 43, the ESV says, not just, it says, uh, oh, heavens worship. Oh, heavens rejoice. But in the Hebrew, it says all nations rejoice. This song also has hints that God's salvation will extend through all the world. And I favor the Hebrew reading. And so God argues he argues his justice and his righteousness against people who would say, why didn't you punish them more? He argues why he was right to punish them. He also argues why he didn't punish them more. He basically says, I stopped short of complete destruction to uphold the honor of my name against my enemies and so I could make something of this people for the glory of my name. So at the end of the second point, let's just stop and we'll put all of God's arguments together. In this song, God is vindicating himself. God's showing his people that he is just and right to punish all who turn from him for future generations who would turn from him. And his arguments are that he's been a really good father and they've been bad children. His arguments that here is the sentence and it's entirely just. And then his argument for why he didn't punish them more is that he wanted to uphold the honor of his name and his greater purpose for his people. So those are some pretty great arguments, if you ask me. Which brings us to our last point for tonight, my favorite. Uh, how do we apply Moses' song to ourselves? This song, this song largely of wrath, if you noticed. How do we apply this to ourselves? Well, to start, I think we have to acknowledge this song primarily exists for a specific kind of person. This song is written as a witness against people who have turned away from God. So this song, this song actually stands as a witness against people that are like this, against people who are starting to think about walking away from God, and against people who have already walked away from God. It's a witness that says to people like this, it says, you are by no means justified in walking away from God. You're by no means justified in complaining about God's justice. He's been a good father to you. And you, you have been the rotten one. And as a result, anything you have coming your way is more than deserved in this life and in the life to come. That's what this song says to those who have walked or are walking away from God. And the more I thought about this song this week, the more it occurred to me that we really need the contents of this song today. I don't have to tell you, we live in a time when there's a great falling away. You look at the news, 
Uh, you look at, you just talk to friends in other parts of the country, you look at podcasts, and there are a lot of people deconstructing their faith today. It breaks our hearts. They're trying to come up with something a little bit more palatable for their tastes, and a lot of people are walking away from traditional Christianity. They're saying, oh, God, and as traditionally understood, and the churches, as traditionally understood, they're, they're too hurtful, too outdated. Like Israel, whenever people get fat with blessings, they forget about God. They turn to other idols, and they kick against him. Kick Jeshurun, upright kicking against him. But this song cuts through all of that nonsense, doesn't it? It's a direct challenge to all of that. Because people who walk away, and they still want to at least sound friendly to Christianity, they'll say things like, at least in their hearts or even with their mouths, they'll say, well, God, God's not like this. God doesn't really care. I can still do X, Y, and Z, and, and he won't be angry with me. He's not an angry God. But then God gave us this witness, didn't he? He says, they have provoked me to anger with their idols. And the fire is kindled in my anger, and it burns to the depths of hell. Or people who walk away, and they're less friendly to Christianity, they'll say things like, God doesn't punish people. What kind of monster would do that? Anyway, it wouldn't be fair. Like, how, come, how can God make me this way, bring me into this awful life, and then punish me for it? They say, what kind of a monster do you worship? But then, God gave us this witness, didn't he? The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. The Lord saw it and spurned them. Why? Because of the provocations of his sons and daughters. It's their fault, not his fault. Or I lift up my hand to heaven and swear as I live forever, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and repay those who hate me. If you're here tonight and you know people who are deconstructing and they're walking away and they start to even give you a little hint a little they start to give you even a little feeling of sympathy for that I want you to know this he is perfectly justified in judging them or even more importantly if you're here tonight and you're starting to drift from him yourself know this he is also perfectly justified in judging you he will judge you unless he's your rock and know this, no matter what place on that spectrum I've just described, no matter what place you're on, he can still be your rock. He can still be your safe place. He can still be your savior. And he must be because he's the only one. Look what he says in the high point of this whole thing. I, even I, am he. There's no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. There is none that can deliver out of my hand, he says. So if you're wandering... If your heart's wandering, return to your rock. There is no other. Ascribe greatness to the rock of your salvation, he says. Be mindful of the rock that bore you, he says. If you do, he'll be the rock of your salvation. He'll be a solid rock of your salvation. How about one more point of application for the rest of us? The rest of us who aren't wandering, well... Even though this song applies most directly to those who are walking away from God. It's a witness against people who walk away from God. It still applies to everyone here because someday, get this, someday we will all sing this song. 
You can look at Revelation 15 with me if you want. Revelation 15, 1. I'll read it to you, so you can just listen, but you can also turn to Revelation 15, 1 if you want to see it yourself. Revelation 15, 1, I take to be another glimpse at the end of all things. A glimpse at a day when God's judgment is finally complete. We touch on this multiple times throughout Revelation. Here's what it says. It says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image, and the number of its name, that's us, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So again, Revelation 15, a glimpse at the end of all things. God's judgment is totally complete. It's done. It's finished. All his people are standing there worshiping him for it. And so you see, after in this passage, after plagues are introduced, God's people are singing a victory song beside a great sea, and you're thinking, oh, this is Red Sea stuff. This is parting of the sea stuff. This is, it reminds you of Moses' first victory song. His first victory song at the Red Sea, back in Exodus 15, you think, this is wonderful. We'll sing victory over enemies, just like Moses did then, but then also... God's people sing the words that they use hearken back to the second song of Moses from Deuteronomy 32. You read, Great and amazing are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. And you're hearing in our, in our Deuteronomy 32, Rejoice, O nations. Ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect. All his ways are justice, and so on. And So you see what we're seeing, what you're seeing in Revelation 15. On the one hand, you're seeing a mashup of Moses' greatest hits. Seeing a remix of Moses' greatest hits, you're seeing Moses' people worship God for his victory over his enemies outside of the church, against Egypt and all those outside of the church, but you're also seeing Moses' people worship God for his victory over enemies who came from within the church. Deuteronomy 32. More than that, you're seeing that the witness of this song will endure to the end. The witness of this song will endure to the end. It's a song that we'll sing in some form. Because one day God will be fully vindicated in his judgment and we'll worship him for it. And we'll say, that's right, just and true are you. Someday we'll see that every ounce of discipline, every gram of punishment, is totally just and right, and we'll stand there with him and we'll applaud him for it. One day God will, like this Deuteronomy 32 says, one day he'll avenge our blood, he'll atone this land, just like he said he would. And so whatever you think of this song, however little you've made of it in the past, tonight this song stands as a witness that all who fall away will rue the message of this song. But all who cling to the rock will one day sing this song with all their hearts in glory with Christ. May we be amongst those who sing it and sing it loud. Amen.
Amen. Let's pray. Father, right now as I finish, I'm so concerned about how this lands. I pray, Lord, that this would be a check and a witness to those walking away, Lord, that you'd even incite us to prayers and care for those who are walking away from such a good rock, from such a good God, just and right are you. Lord, at the same time, we, we pause and we worship you, we praise you. Everything you do is right. Uh, you are upright by its very definition, and we praise you. Lord, may we all sing this song today, up to that day, and on that day, and forevermore, O oh Lord. And may many more join us. May they see, turn back, the deconstruction and the, the walking away, the falling away of our, our church, our land, our nation, Lord. That's the burden of our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.